I'm Jonathan Platt, and you're listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast. Nobody makes it to the top alone. Now, you don't even have to try. Your journey to a life filled with purpose and leadership fueled by confidence begins right now. This week, my guest is none other than 2021 Hall of Fame W.R. White Meritorious Service Honoree, Gaynor Yancey. Gaynor is a professor and master teacher in the Garland School of Social Work and Truett Theological Seminary. Previously, she served as Associate Dean for Baccalaureate Social Work, and her career has been a wonderful and inspiring blend of practical work in the field of community organizing and highly acclaimed work in the academy, mentoring students, studying, and publishing on the topic of congregational social work. Thanks for joining me to hear Gaynor's story and celebrate her together as the Baylor family. Here's my interview with Gaynor Yancey. How has teaching been this semester? Well, since we've had one week of class, uh, I would tell you it's going to be good. (laughs) (laughs) No tech failure yet. No. I have one class that I have yet to meet uh, because of the holiday last week and because mm. of the semester on a Tuesday. So I'll meet that class uh, this coming week for the first time. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, sadly and tragically, in the School of Social Work, we've uh, had a death of one of our students and so had uh, her service uh, yesterday and the things that uh, have honored her all week going on in, in the School of Social Work, we've dedicated the semester to her. But that's that's been a hard thing for our school to go to. And that's, of yeah. course, we're at the five-year mark with uh, the death of our uh, dean of uh, Diana Garland. So uh, those of us who were here when that occurred know uh, what that was like as far as uh, the preparatory grief of knowing that she was sick and that uh, uh, then she died. And so uh, we haven't had that kind of uh, long-term preparation for uh, the death of Alicia, but uh, she has certainly made her mark uh, in our student body. Uh, when we read the testimonies uh, of people about her life, uh, it's been so significant. Yeah. So um, uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around some of this. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so um, that's been how the first week has gone, uh, but lots of things falling into place and uh, just excited, always excited to have the students back. Always yeah. feel like something's disconnected when the students aren't around us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Waco feels Waco feels too quiet when there aren't students. Yeah. And sure, there aren't lines, you know, at the the Target or the Starbucks or stuff. But that's that's one of those those little things. But that's it's exactly. way too quiet. I, yeah, for sure. I um I was able to read uh, the uh, I'm not sure if you call it an obituary if if more of a um a celebration of Alicia that the Lariat wrote. Right. Um, I think obituary is too limiting, and it was. It was such a um, a beautiful life and a woman who who left so many people inspired. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, uh, you know, how horrible and and tragic. What better school, though, to lead the Baylor family and campus through the grieving process of this? When I was a student, there were, I, I believe, two students who, who you know, uh, saw an untimely death, right. and um, I just remember how, well, it's almost like when the students aren't there, campus right. is, is different. It's quieter. It's, it, yeah. So, so I, I'm, I'm glad it's been a good start to a semester that easily could have had a more 
grief-filled um, start. I'm, I'm very glad that you all are leading us through this grief. One of the things, Jonathan, that's been uh, um, so, uh, I think, reflective of who we are as a university is we gathered together on Monday night on the screen, <clears throat> similar to what we were doing now with Zoom. And again, one of the advantages that we have with Zoom, so many people talk about the, you know, the uh, challenges around Zoom, but we do have some advantages where we can gather ourselves together quickly and we can be together in community, maybe not touching each other, hugging each other in the same way, but we gathered ourselves together. Uh, but it was also very indicative of the university that um, the chaplain led us. We had uh, Jim Marsh from the counseling department there. Uh -huh. uh, we had um, uh, leaders, uh, President Livingstone herself was there, uh, said a few words. Our dean was there. Um, you know, Kevin was there. Uh, we just, I mean, we could just go down the path and say, wow, here's the list of people who are showing you that no matter what their role is in our university, that to that family, their daughter was significant as a part of our student body. Yes. And then when you start to see uh, faculty members there, both from undergrad and grad across the university, because she also was a undergrad student, again, in our program as far as social work, but she was also a Baylor student. And uh -huh. so uh, just to see everybody come together, there were over a hundred and something people there along with wow. members. And even after uh, those who, had a part as far as uh, saying things and um, you know remembering her life uh, were, were leaving us. It was amazing to me, the fact that we still ended up with 50 to 75 people staying on Zoom. It was like nobody wanted to leave. Yeah. And so uh, if we were in the room together in terms of physically, I think what we would have found is that people would not have left easily because we didn't yeah. leave Zoom easily. And yeah. then we got to hear the more personal stories from her family and they started to show us some of the albums of her, uh -huh. her life and those kinds of things and so it just ended up being one of those uh for me the highly spiritual times that don't always center themselves in when we go to church as far as the building called church or we go to gather ourselves in that way but our faith community is always at play which is so exciting and so interesting and so uh, securing, quite frankly, uh, in terms of stabilizing us even more when we talk about who we are as a faith uh, university, faith infused, we truly do live that out in a thousand one ways that I think we don't always acknowledge. So yeah. it's really been a, um, uh, it's been one of those weeks that um, you start to see that again and start to claim it for the goodness of who we are as a university. Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to several uh, Zoom calls that I would have towards the beginning of the pandemic. And there was that, you know, um, I, I, dozens of scholars wrote about it in popular and academic writings about how, you know, in those early months, we were all suffering through uh, the grieving process, the, right. you know, the loss of life as normal, the loss of people that we knew, and, and also just that loss of, of humanity, being able to you know, sit in the same room and, and touch the people that we love and even just receive small things, handshakes, pats on the back, things like that, losing that humanity. And I did notice that, that as, um, as Zoom calls would end, people would linger a little bit. Uh, and you could definitely tell the Baptists that were there because they stayed around the longest and you could tell someone was waiting to ask, so which Mexican place are we going to eat at? You know, but we couldn't, you know, so I, I love, I love to hear um, 
that you guys are leading us through this um, and that the, the administration uh, is leading us so well in, in this. Yeah. And, and I'm, glad, I'm glad we started off with Alicia. I, I think it would not have been, um, I think it would not have been honest if we had moved over that. Um, so I'm glad you, you began there. Could I get you for a moment though, to tell our audience a little bit about you? Could we learn just a little bit who Gaynor Yancey is and why we're talking to her and why she's receiving uh, this honor for the 2021 class of Hall of Fame? I will try. Uh, the least popular topic for me to talk about is myself. Um, <laughs> so uh, let me see what I can do with this, Jonathan. Um, first of all, I'm so humbled uh, and honored to be the recipient of this award this year. Um, I never think about those kinds of things. Um, what I've always tried to think about in my life um, is the fact that uh, I really truly believe that we're here to serve other people. And so, and that we are meant to be servants. And this comes uh, with a high integration with my faith uh, perspective. My parents did not come to know the Lord until um, they were in their, oh, I don't know, I'll say their late 30s or early 40s. And so my brother and I were literally taken uh, to church and dropped off on the corner up until that point uh, because my mother had been excommunicated from the Catholic Church when she married my father, who had no religious tradition at all. And so uh, she never left her love of the church, so to speak. But until they came to know the Lord, um, then uh, there was not a commitment of our, my family at all, except by way of the fact that... Um, mother would always make sure that we would be going to those churches. And I grew up the first part of my life in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so in those uh, first 10 years, there was a, a little American Baptist church that continued to, uh, to reach out to all the immigrant children. And I was an immigrant child. Uh, so I was born in England. Uh, my mother's English. My father is from uh, a little place called Patmos, Arkansas, which is 26 miles back in the truly back into the pure sticks, as he would say of that rural area of Hope, Arkansas. So I know where you're talking about. Yeah, I'm an East Texas boy. So, oh, yeah. okay. so Southeastern Arkansas ain't all that, di or Southwestern Arkansas ain't all that different. Right. So, uh, and on that side, uh, you know, my grandparents uh, were farmers and they grew everything that they ate, uh, you know, uh, just everything, just very, very poor and economically poor. And my father was, uh, when he was growing up, actually was, uh, if you go back to our social welfare history, you'll find that he became one of the many young people that would go into the conservation force. So he was sent out to Oregon, Washington area to work in the, uh, uh, those huge trees and lumber uh, manufacturing that we had at that point in time. And so I think they made something like $30 a month. And he would send that back to his parents because they were so poor. There were six children and they were all very, very poor. And so, um, uh, so anyway, so, so my parents are a part of my life, quite frankly. And we, we know that. I mean, we know the families that we're born into. But the spiritual part of my life, uh, the spiritual family that I start to think about is also my family. And so I know the before, you know, Jesus kind of question that we might ask people. But we also know, I know the other side of the after Jesus, you know, when Jesus became very real in the life of my parents. Because when that happened, then also for my brother and for I, we, for me, we both ended up being uh, very clearly uh, committed to the Lord and then following what God had for us. When my parents became Christians, 
they taught us that uh, number one, they believed that they were strictly loaned us as our parents, that we were the Lord's. Uh -huh. And so I can remember my uh, parents saying to me all the time, uh, Gaynor, you must do always what you and God feel is important for you to do with your life. And you know, as I've grown, Jonathan, through the years, one of the things that I know about that is that that has been very freeing in a thousand and one ways. I realize so many of us grow up and our parents always want us to do this or they want us to do that. But, um, you know, uh, just to know that my parents had the confidence in me that I would be praying about something, seeking God's face about what literally the direction would be that, uh, you know, God would impress uh, on my heart to go, became very, very freeing for me as a young person, um, whether I was thinking about a college, whether I was thinking about something else. So, so all of that to say that my original calling from the Lord was to go into missionary service. And so, uh, and that was not unusual either, uh, because in the churches, uh, as we would have them then, in our Baptist churches in particular, uh, we would think about where we, in fact, through missions education, we would be talking about, okay, it would never be unusual for us to be called into missionary service, and where would you go? You'd go to Africa. Most of the time, you'd go to Africa. So I truly was called to go to Africa. I was called to go to Nigeria, Africa. Very clear call of God at 13 years of age to go to Africa to work with uh, indigenous women, those who are native to the area, teaching them how to speak English, how to parent well, and then teaching them what we now would refer to as social entrepreneurship, uh, which is that around you know, a job skill so that they would be able to uh, make their living somehow and producing some kind of good service. Uh, and so uh, the irony of all that is I didn't end up going to Africa. I spent uh, the next 10 years of my life though preparing to go to Africa, was all set to go. And then in my last semester of seminary, I literally felt the call of God go cold in my life. And so uh, it was so hard at that point in time because uh, I was at East Texas Baptist uh, University. I went there um, and got my uh, undergrad degree in English and in business education, again, in preparation for going to Africa. And uh, then, of course, then under our boards that you would go under, as far as our denominations were concerned, you also had to have teaching experience since I would be teaching. And so I also did my teaching experience in public school. Did you, did you do it in Marshall? No, I did it in uh, Pittsburgh, Texas. Oh, okay. I taught at Pittsburgh High School uh, initially. And so, uh, so anyway, did all of that. So to end up in seminary then with this call of God going, you know, dead, so to speak, and cold in my life was like, oh, that was, that was the most horrendous thing in my life. Uh, seriously, hardest decision I think I've ever made. At that point in time, I had just come through a, a broken engagement because I was engaged to a, uh, a Methodist pastor. And uh, ironically, uh, one of the reasons that we did not go through with our wedding was because he was called to be a Methodist uh, pastor, was already pastoring, but I had a distinct call to missionary service. And so we couldn't reconcile those two things. I couldn't mm. make that be okay uh, somehow. And so uh, as hard as it was, uh, he to this day is single as am I. And so uh, it's been very interesting that uh, he has stayed single as have I. And um, bottom line is, doesn't have anything to do with the depth of our love. It has everything to do with continuing to follow what you really believe that God wanted you to do with your life. So I ended up going to Philadelphia, ended up being there in uh, 
service uh, in uh, communities where congregations had died. And my role was to go in and to assess those communities and find out if they, not a new church, but whether gospel witness could be there. So uh, some of you will have parents and grandparents who will come through the days of the puppet ministries and you will have done the summer mission trips and all those kinds of things. So utilize the work from the South a great deal uh, in that 30 years. But out of that came to um, understand the importance of what does this whole concept of our daily living of the gospel mean? Mm. So um, I thought that I really understood that. However, when I ended up being face-to-face -face with pure poverty in a way that I had never seen in my life in the places where I was in Philadelphia, I found myself in a three-year period where God had to literally turn me inside out. And almost a, uh, uh, where the scripture talks about, uh, you know, you can't put new wine in old wineskins because of this first. Uh, the bottom line is I had to become a new person and, and another transformation took place in my life, which was then when I felt called into social work. Ironically, I already had a seminary degree, uh, but I had not been called into social work, but then I was called into social work and everything in my life changed then because then that full integration of what does this practical application of the gospel that we say we have in our hearts and that we believe and that we function with, how does that show itself daily? in our interactions with people, no matter what that would look like. But if we say we have it, Jonathan, and then we, we don't play it out, so to speak, and live it out and practice it day by day, then it's like, how real is that gospel to us? So, yeah. so in all of that, um, those years ended up uh, teaching me from people who were so patient with me, um, who literally would be uh, the people that so many uh, people might reject for some reason or another. And God taught me how to love in a very different way. And so uh, hard, hard lessons at that. But, uh, but this reality of how do you serve other people uh, in the name of Jesus with his love becomes the paramount picture, I think, of my story. And so in doing that, it's not through the disconnects. It's through the connection. So people are extremely important to me. Uh, I don't find anybody that I find having been taught so much that if you're around people that um, have some kind of quote unquote used to be the words were sin. I don't know how much we use those words anymore, but whatever those, those behaviors are that people would have, uh, you know, you don't get around those people because quote unquote, if you're around those people, then their sin is going to rub off on you. So I left all of that. I left all that and found myself in those places, found myself quote unquote, and I'm using this very broadly and very generally, with those people because those people are who God loves and who I have come to love and who literally I have had their services of uh, both marriage and also of uh, funerals and uh, just honored to be a part of their lives and so honored and dignified by what their honoring and dignifying was to me to take the time to be patient with me and to teach me hey Gainer you don't understand what life is like I heard somebody this week, Jonathan, on one of the newscasts, and they were talking about the number of hungry people that we have in the world. We have hungry people, and we have had for, you know, our whole history. And so I'm not saying that that's unimportant. I'm saying that to say we've not gotten this right yet. And so she was saying, if everybody could just walk in our shoes just for one day, just for one day, and I got to do that. I've got to walk in people's shoes.
And I had uh, the privilege of doing that in their homes, whatever that might have been in their homes, whatever conditions their homes might have been. It's just been an honor and a privilege. And so, so to do that has been um, probably uh, for me the most meaningful thing in my life besides teaching. And so everything I've done, even when I was working in the church, I taught, um, you know, teaching people themselves how um, my big thing is to think about the environment of empowerment. I don't believe we can empower people, but I believe we set up that environment to where people can be taught and trained and so that we can make the wise decisions that they have for themselves. We don't need to put our goals, our objectives on them. We need to hear what it is that they have in their lives that they want to achieve and then teaching them how to make those solid decisions that are important for them. So, so all of that included in my teaching becomes extremely important. Uh, so I left missionary service, uh, quite frankly, uh, over the issue of women. And it was over the issue of whether or not women should preach or not. And I uh, actually had some folks walk out on me when I was asked to bring a convention sermon for the annual meeting because I was a woman. And that was probably the hardest thing of my life. Uh, is because I never had thought about the fact that God did not call me to be a pastor, so I've never thought about that. And so um, uh, the fact that some of my friends in the ministry who I had spoken in all their pulpits in their churches over those years of missionary service, uh, literally because I was a woman, though, and because it was titled a sermon, uh, walked out. And that was where I came into my realization about the fact that I could not change my gender you know my sex is what it is now we're in days where I guess people can do that but the bottom line is that would never be a thought and so um so to know that that is who God has made me to be and yet that's not acceptable and was not acceptable at that point became a really uh, crucial turning point for me in my life so I left working then in missionary service in the church and then became the director of the Great Philadelphia Food Bank and so there I was with uh, uh, all sorts of agencies and congregations that were going to feed hungry people. And of course I've been a part of feeding people who were hungry all the way through my ministry. So, uh, so long story short, all of that time, also back to school uh, to get a master's degree in social work, to get a doctorate in social work, and then ultimately to end up uh, here at Baylor, which is also the joy of my life, for sure. So I wanna, I wanna ask you about that. What, what was that, I don't want to use the word call inappropriately, because I, I know how special that is. What was that um, maybe signal or, or, or um, just pull that you felt to, to come to Baylor? What caused you to make that decision to come here? Well, again, I would tell you that was another difficult time for me. In fact, when I go back and think about all the things where a transition occurred in my life, Jonathan, it's, uh, it's never been, uh, wow, spur of the moment kinds of things, but this was a very long decision. And so um, the dean at, um, I mean, the president at uh, Eastern College and now University in Philadelphia where I was teaching had asked me to become the first dean of the school, of the Campolo School of Economics. And so, uh, uh, which would have been a very natural fit, okay, because I was very active in community service in the uh, uh, the Philadelphia area and all of that region. And so uh, not just uh, through church work, but also through um, uh, civic engagement. And so did lots of things around that. And so it just would have been the right thing to do. I was very well prepared to do it. 
I knew that I could do it. Uh, there wasn't even a question. So we committed to praying about that. And so, uh, so basically, uh, in about six months, he came back and said, okay, where are we with our praying? You know, and we had some conversation. He wasn't trying to pressure me along. And so I said, I don't know. I don't even know what to tell you, you know. And so, uh, so long story short, that went on, if you can believe this, for a year. And he waited a year. And so we had convocation services together as a university, uh, always on the Friday night before graduation on Saturday morning. And so we were sitting in church, and I had just been given an award. And so uh, I sat there and continued to look out at that student body and uh, everybody who was there. And it was then that I came to this realization, and it was like God just finally said to me, Gainer, this is not what you should be doing. You shouldn't be uh, taking this, this job as far as the dean of the Camp Holy School. And I would have been the initial dean, the inaugural dean. And so I felt very comfortable. So the next morning before graduation, I actually talked with him. He was so gracious to wait on me. And so uh, and to give time for uh, the Lord and I to figure this out together. And so I didn't know why I felt led. And I, I was prepared to stay there teaching and to do all that. Had no idea in my mind I would be coming back to Texas, quite frankly. And so not because I didn't like Texas. Uh, my whole family's been here all along. You know, I've been somewhat removed for 30 years. And so anyway... Um, so the next morning, then I get a call from Preston Dyer asking me if I would come uh, to Baylor uh, to teach uh, in social welfare policy. And if I would uh, start to do that, that the person who had that position was retiring. And then if I also would be uh, the connector between the integration of faith and practice, because they had nobody that they uh, literally knew of in this country that at that point in time, that could uh, lead us down the path as we started the new master's in social work program. And the social work program and the master's program was going to have the integration of faith and practice. In the undergrad, they didn't do that so much. So that was a natural fit for me. Mm -hmm. And then I knew why I couldn't get a piece. And, and Jonathan, quite frankly, if I don't have the peace from the Lord in my heart about that, then I know better than to make a move. I know better than, I, I know just to stay put rather than to force something if I don't have that peace in my life. So that's that's just my experience with the Lord and how I have felt throughout my life that I needed to live my life, quite frankly. And yeah. so then everything fell into place uh, for me to come. And quite frankly, I wasn't prepared to come. I mean, everything was done and I was here in July of 99. And so sold my house, I put it up for sale and it sold right away. I mean, I thought, oh my goodness, how could this possibly be? It sold right away. And so I never would have thought that, but I'm, I've never moved so fast in all my life. Never. Wow. Which came, though, in context after a whole year of preparation. So whatever had to be done on this end, who knew that was all going on, you know. And so uh, just, just interesting stuff all the way around. But yeah. what my giftings is around development. In fact, it's my number one gifting. And so, uh, so I love be a part of developing organizations. I've you know, started new organizations. Some of them have died, some of them continue on. Um, people the same way, you know, how do you help people develop into all that they want to be? Uh, you know, uh, it, it could be anything. So, so whether it was church work where we took churches uh, literally that had died and without thinking church planting here at all, but rather what does community look like and how do you pull people together, uh, enjoying being together? 
before you know it, you've got a faith community started, and who knew? Uh, out of ministry came four brand new congregations that are still in existence in Philadelphia, and a model for how to do that. Everywhere is about what does that development look like? But again, I think in my personality, it's got to also be the investment of time, the investment of myself, of my expertise, of, of uh, my patience, of all of those kinds of things that God has gifted me with, that uh, to somebody else might look really ridiculous. Um, I don't need to be in the forefront of anywhere. I like to be in the background. I truly like to be in the background. And um, it's just it's just a pleasure and an honor, quite frankly, to be with people in that kind of background. So so starting everything uh, where we've been like this has been wonderful. Yeah, and so you've you've been at Baylor for uh, twenty years now, and now almost twenty two. Yeah, yeah, and um, been such fun. What what does it mean after twenty years to be and, and I know you've received other honors and, and you've received some of the highest accolades that uh, a, a professor, a, a member of the Baylor family can receive, but what does it mean each time to be honored? And, and maybe more specifically, what does it mean to be uh, a member of, of this class of, of honorees? One of the things I say, Jonathan, first of all, and I, I try my best not to get emotional. As I've, I've gotten older, I've just given way to the emotion. So uh, so if I happen to get emotional, uh, which I'm trying hard not to, uh, please forgive me. But uh, uh, it is always, for me, it is one of those things that I, I've started using the words, I'm just flabbergasted. You know, how could, <laughs> how could this be? Uh, because I never think about these things. I think about them always for other people. You know, we always have the opportunity for putting people's names in and uh, get to come alongside and, uh, and to encourage people in that way. But um, but it is truly an honor. I mean, it is truly an honor. And it's always uh, without exception. It is with, wow, you know, I think, again, it, it always is amazing to me to realize that people watch our lives. They really watch our lives. You know, when, when we go about doing the things that we have, uh, that we do day by day, I don't think it's always with the awareness that people are watching. You know, we might know that intellectually but emotionally, spiritually, other ways, I don't think that we, we give too much assent to that all the time. So, so it's just like, how can I be, and, and I said this with one of the awards I got, and I feel very strongly about this too, which is how could I possibly be the recipient of this wonderful award when there are over a thousand of us sitting out there, okay? Uh, for me, the honor is being at Baylor with this faculty that we have. Uh, which is outstanding. I mean, it's, it's how do you take our faculty and how do you say who we all are, right? And then how you take the staff that we have, which is so outstanding. And sometimes they get so overlooked and we try hard not to do that. And yet we could not be who we are if we didn't have this wonderful supportive staff that we all right. have. Yeah. And then when you think about the real pleasure that we have all of us together, to invest the lives of students such as what you've been and others who are beside you, behind you, who are coming ahead to help you all uh, and to assist and to just walk alongside you for what you feel like you're going to do to be world changers. I mean, I can't think of anything more honoring and dignifying in life. And so it's um, uh, when I say that I'm just speechless, 
uh, I'm an external processor. I talk all the time, right? As you see today, I'm just talking, talking. You can tell I've been cooped up in my office <laughs> on Zoom. So, uh, but but it's it is that where you find yourself. I find myself speechless. I don't know what to say, except thank you, thank you, and I hope that this is an honor to those of you who saw. If you could spend a little time telling me about who you may be most thankful for, those people at Baylor who have been role models, informal mentors, uh, inspirations, people who you may have never actually uh, met, but who left a legacy uh, for you. I'm I'm sure uh, I know that Dr. Gardner will be uh, towards the the top of that list. Um, And excuse me, Dr. Gardner. um, And uh, uh, could you, could you tell us some of those other people who, who have made this possible uh, sure. for you with their help? Sure. So um, Dr. Garland, definitely. Um, I knew Dr. Garland when I was in missionary service. She was uh, uh, at Southern Seminary and she was uh, actually uh, had called me to go to work on staff there at uh, Southern. And I, that's when I was at the Greater Philadelphia Food Bank as the executive director. And I can remember sitting in my office there looking over the warehouse because I had an office side and then I also had the warehouse where all the food would be. And so uh, I remember looking out the window over the warehouse as we were talking uh, this one time uh, while she was trying to think about recruiting me to go to Southern. And so um, uh, I remember her saying to me, Gaynor, you, uh, uh, you know, you're probably going to be asked about what you think about women. And at that point in time, I was saying, you know, that's not an issue. You know, I've just gone through my own time of uh, seeing that when you're a woman in this work, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much you've been so uncontroversial before. Uh, when that becomes an issue around certain things, and uh, you know, we end up uh, um, there's just nothing we can change about that. So, anyway, so long story short. Uh, I remember saying to her, you know, uh, Diana, I don't think it's the time for me to go to Southern. And so, uh, uh, but we agreed that we were going to stay in touch. And what she had done, Jonathan, all the years where she made her uh, mark about congregational social work, she was writing about the things that people like me were actually doing in practice. We did not then, at that point in time, we were not being mentored by anybody to say to us, you know, take time to write about these things that you're doing, you know. So she knew that was a vacuum, and so uh, wisely she was starting to put, to, you know, uh, to writing those kinds of practices that we were doing, which was showing this full integration, of course, of what does uh, ministry look like in terms of uh, working with people, coming alongside, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when she got to Baylor, then truly uh, between her and Dr. Dyer, whom I did not know, quite frankly, I didn't know Preston Dyer. And so he was the, uh, uh, before we became a school, we were still a department. Uh, he, uh, uh, he really had conversation with me a great deal. Such a wonderful man, such a model of, again, of service and care for people. And uh, I remember the kinds of things that he would talk to me about. And he, uh, I remember at some point he would say to me uh, the first year, because I, I remember my whole thing about coming to Baylor was um, my nieces even said to me, Gaynor, do you realize where you're going? And I said, yes, I do. And so uh, I said, but what are you suggesting? And so they said, you realize uh, that the students at Baylor will be very different than anywhere else that you've been. And I said, yes, I realize. And so, uh, you know, and I was answering, yes, 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 yes. 
And so um, they said, uh, but you're not used to being around so many people with such affluence. And that was their comment to me as young women. I said, oh, that's okay. I said, that doesn't make any difference. So I said, yes, I've been around so many people now with economic poverty. I said, but it'll be okay. I said, you know, because uh, students are students. And I said, uh, and they're going to be doing uh, the kinds of things and learning the kinds of things that they think are gonna be important for their lives. And that's what I'm gonna be doing, you know? So anyway, the first year was a tough year for me. I, I remember that. And I remember being caught off guard in 1999 with the amount of whiteness that we represented. And so uh, I remember uh, thinking, wow, I'm not used to this uh, because I worked so much with uh, churches that were African-American and our language culture churches of all sorts of ethnicities and very few white churches actually. And so, uh, so out of that, uh, one of the things uh, Preston tried to pay attention to was one day he said, uh, I wondered, uh, Gainer, how you were, this was probably in the spring semester, and he said, I wondered how you were handling, uh, and how are you handling being around so many white people? He said, I don't, I, I worried about whether you would make it through the first year. I said, you know, I said, this is where God has called me to be. I remember answering, this is where God's called me to be, and it's going to be okay. Now, I didn't know what all that meant at that point, right? And I remember asking, because I also had been a civil rights scholar, uh, you know, what had been our history in Waco around uh, civil rights? And so, uh, so and, and I got the answer, oh, we didn't have any problems. And I said, no, 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 that can't be, you know. And, and so much of my work around African-American churches, I had to let go of at that point in time because it was not the acceptable thing to do. Now it would be welcomed, right? And we've come so far. So, uh, so I remember Preston being so important in my life. As I was going through those years, the interesting thing is because we were scattered, Jonathan, as a staff in School of Social Work, we were all over the campus. We had no place. Similar so, to how the School of Education was for a few years? Okay. So or I guess not a few years, but the few, the few years that I was here uh, until maybe my graduate degree, I think, they did not have a centralized place where they were and they met. So the, the School of Social Work was like that? We, uh, uh, none of us had offices anywhere together. And so my first office was in the uh, anthropology lab. Oh. <laughs> I taught almost all the courses that were taught at night then. We had all of our night classes. And I had all these skeletons and skulls and everything around me. And I was like, oh dear, all these skulls are <laughs> here. And I wondered why were students not coming to see me? Well, I was teaching night classes and it made it even more foreboding to even come into that lab. And then on top of that, we couldn't dust anything because you weren't allowed to dust the skeletons and the skulls and everything. So it was just an interesting time. And we were never so grateful to be where our, um, our military offices are now over in the parking garage because it ended up being there. And so, uh, so out of that came, you know, who were the significant people? They ended up being the people that somewhere you might see somewhere. And we're so grateful for the people in every academic unit who gave us offices to meet in because we didn't have a centralized location. And so when we finally got to be in that, that small space that was over there then at the parking garage, it was like, wow, we got to see more people. And then when they built you know, the faculty center over there, we got to see even more people. So gradually, as I got to know people, the people who started to, to be those that I would start to hear about that became important to me were Betsy Vardaman, worked alongside her. She was so gracious. I mean, so very gracious. Uh, one of the things that, um, uh, she would 
be the most encouraging about was just being yourself, you know, being yourself, but yet expecting so much from our students, always yeah. again, promoting our students. I would see Tom Hanks uh, invariably when I'd go to the library to meet the students, Tom would come in and so uh, he'd talk to me. And so he'd always have that smile on his face and, and uh, you know, just the gentleman that he was, you know, was just wonderful, you know, just wonderful. Uh, Rosemary Townsend, who was not a, a teacher, but she was a staff person, so instrumental in, again, investment of, uh, of thought so that she also was uh, concerned about what students would be learning. So we found a, a common ground about what students would be learning. And, and that's how we started the first civil rights tour with our students as far as our interdisciplinary uh, folks. So, so I could go through all sorts of folks and say, wow, and call out these names. And gradually, you know, that list of names has become longer and longer and longer. And from every person, there has been something that's been so positive to go back to and to learn from. I mean, without a, a question. Pearly, when I saw Pearly, you know, Pearly was like, can I hold on to you for a while, you know? And so even now, it's just so wonderful to be with her and to see her. These Palacios, you know, I can, I can name all sorts of people that gradually the work of where and how do we want our student body to be, those types of things become important, those types of relationships. Uh, you know, the people in the library, I think about Sine Wood, and I think, wow, she oh, has oh, one of my favorite people. I mean, you're, you're, this whole list is nothing but the list of the best of the best, in my opinion. And every single person, I, I think, you know, oh, she can't name a better person than that. And then, and then you do. And, uh, oh, my gosh, I love all these people. I love Sine. I love uh, Bill Hare. Oh, they're just, they're two of the best in the library. And now Josh Green comes on board. and. Mm-hmm everything around the digital uh, aspect which is where we need to move to and of course I, I hold on to him because he was in Philadelphia and in New York for a while and so he understands that world and that and so uh, so it's just been wonderful I mean I feel like I'm in a cast of thousands and that I'm the least of all of these and they are just so committed overall to students to staff the faculty to all of us being the best that we can be and it's it's just an honor just an do you honor. know do you know what's what's common among every one of those people that that you mentioned they would say the same thing they would list you know a hundred people and then they would say and i am the least worthy of these and that that to me is why it's so special to honor the use of the world, the people who say, I'm, I'm not worthy of this honor. And in fact, let me tell you about somebody else who is. And, and so that's, it's so incredibly special to me. Uh, Liz Vardaman received, uh, I'm pretty sure the Herb Reynolds retired faculty award last year. Um, I mean, her, her acceptance speech was one of nothing, but grace and and humility and you know in that same class we had like Bob Darden and Lyndon Olson you know who got up there and gave their railing speeches you know about uh, equality and acceptance and bettering the Baylor experience but to hear people like Liz Vardaman say you know thank you so specially for this award um, and you know I'm more thankful for the people that got me here than the award itself it's just so 
heartening and uplifting to hear. So I want to say thank you to you for, for being yet another one of those people who, who makes this so worth it to, to get to spend a little time with you, learning more about your story and, and getting time to spend learning about those who are in that, that cast of people who make all of us, all of us better. Thank you, Jonathan. And I, other person, I, I want to say real quickly about David Garland, because David Garland to me is a, uh, um, he's the pinnacle of how you see a commitment to of service. Uh, when you watch what he did in leaving already a heavy job as the dean, and yet because the university needed to have somebody to, you know, be that interim role of president and provost, you know, twice around, he had to leave that, that dean role of the seminary. But then you have people like Dennis Tucker, who was his associate uh, dean at the seminary, and yet he fit so clearly into that dean role while David then was serving the university. And I think that's the thing that we have of our DNA at Baylor, right, is that we have this, this commitment to service and servanthood that says, yes, I can do this. And God's already brought up somebody else who can go into that role that we might have to leave to go do this other thing that's so important for our university. And, and it's already the whole lineup is there. And without this support, then we couldn't have this of somebody else to fit in so that therefore we're not skipping a beat, so to speak, and, and our role of who we are in educating students ever goes away. And the, the Garlands filled the world with, with such fantastic people and, and inspiration. And, uh, you know, Jonathan Garland was one of our, or was our outstanding alumni recipient, outstanding young alumni recipient last year. And, and it's just, last year I thought, like, this is the best class that we'll ever get. And, and then this year's class came along and made me think, okay, well, we'll just put a little asterisk next to the two of them. And these are the two best classes. And, and if you look backwards and hopefully, uh, not hopefully, I know when you look forwards, we're going to say every year is the best class that we've had. You know, and John Garland again is one of those, uh, I remember when Diana interviewed me and we sat over at, uh, Memphis and John Garland was then a uh, high schooler at Midway High School. And so bless his heart, he sat there and endured that interview, which was of course, <laughs> but he, uh, he sat there and he literally just, um, he was so mature. He was so uh, just professional, uh, you know, uh, in every way. And it was just a quiet lunch, you know, it really was not an interview. I tease about that. But I've watched him with interest because I've watched how, uh, again, you start to see the DNA of who he is and you watch his life and all the things about that and now where he is and the service that he's providing. And now being a, a doctoral student in the uh, seminary and, and just seeing what God's doing in his life, you know, and, and, and you go back and you say, okay, what happened when? So in 99, uh, you know, this happened. In the spring of 99, this happened. And those link pins become important, Jonathan, you know, and I'm sure we all know that, but, but they are the links that tie us together. They are what gives us a sense of belonging, of this sense of, um, of not only community, but of God's grace to us, quite frankly. I think about, you know, I think about uh, Galen Foreman and how I got to know him over at uh, Carver Park. And again, because I've done so much work with African-American churches, when I first went there, it was like, I just felt like I died and gone to heaven seriously 
because it, it reminded me not so uh, not solely of my work so much in my ministry that uh, had gone on in uh, Philadelphia, but it was just like I felt at home. I felt at home. But that's the way I've also felt it daily. Uh, I feel at home. I feel like we're in the place where, and again, for me, it's about where does God intend for me to be? And this is where I believe with all my heart God intended for me to be. Uh, you know, and we've been through lots of changes in these 22 years, uh, all of them positive and some of them very, very hard. But uh, at the same time, uh, we are moving uh, constantly in that realm of what is it that God wants us to do? What is it that God wants us to do? That's always the question. And I never have a question about that. And that makes me feel at home. I can't indicate that. Do you want to do some rapid fire questions to kind of wrap this up? Okay, here are here. Cats I have. You ask me how many cats I have. We have we have just one. I do want to know how many do you have? I have none now. Oh. <laughs> but I've always had a whole bunch of, and also dogs too. But I don't have any now. Oh. Um, okay, here are the rules for rapid fire. Okay. Um, you don't get to think. Oh. You just say what comes to your head, and oh. we're gonna try to go fast less thinking more just giving us giving us that that subconscious gainer letting us fill in the gaps a little bit okay um okay first question when the pressure is building uh, when you feel those physical responses to stress for me i i roll my shoulders up and i and i clench my teeth um whatever that physical response for you is when you feel that that pressure that stress um that performance anxiety uh, whatever it is what is the first thing that you do to pull yourself back to the ground, to, to feel more in the moment and, and equipped and capable and ready to do the next right thing? What's that first thing that you do? First thing I do is, uh, and this is going to sound very religious and I don't mean for it to be, but I, I usually breathe a quick word of prayer and say, Lord, I know that you and I together can do this. You would not have had me in this place, and I would not have accepted this if I didn't believe that you and I together could do it. I, I love it. I'm the same. I read Anne Lamont's book, Help, Thanks, Wow, years ago, and that, that taught me my, my first response. I take a, de- a deep breath in, and I breathe out, and I say, help, help, help. Right, right. for sure. It's so, it's so fun we both start in the same place. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Second question. What what is something that people get wrong about you? Probably they think uh that I am uh stern uh would be my hutch uh because I'm uh organizationally I like to have things done well and uh in particular ways. And so uh they might have a, a opinion that I might be even judging people because I'm which I'm not. But the bottom line is, I think I could come off that way. I think I could be intimidating to people in that way. And it's not because I'm not warm and because I'm not loving. But uh, I think that could be a misunderstanding. Do you know what you are on the Enneagram? I am still determining what I am on the Enneagram. You know what? I like that answer best. The people that I respect the most say that. So I'm, that's a great answer. I like it. I can tell you, though, Jonathan, that I, I uh, when we start, first started doing the Enneagram, that I thought, okay, I am a pure nine. I'm the pure nine because I truly like to be behind the scenes. I truly am a peacemaker, even though all of my life I have found myself in controversial situations, but I've tried not to be controversial. And so, um, so out of that comes uh, my preference. Quite frankly, if I always had my preference, it would be 
to be behind the scenes, to be sure that I'm, um, I'm negotiating, mediating, doing those kinds of things. But I think it's most important that we learn to hear each other. And so that nine fits me perfectly, not around the uh, delay of doing things, that kind of thing, but more in the, um, in the attitudinal kinds of things. However, in, in learning more about the, uh, the Enneagram, I, I think I'm gonna settle in somewhere in that 963 or that 369, uh, but the three part is that part where it's like, no, I don't need to be seen. So that's what makes it so hard for me with awards, right? And I'm not yeah. saying I don't ever get another award, but uh, because they're all very important to me. But uh, but the the, uh, the publicity of that uh, is sometimes disarming to me, uh, quite frankly. So uh, I always like to be appreciated for what I can do, but uh, but never to the point of um, you know where where I need to seek that attention. Sometimes it comes with it free, and then the six, of course, takes me back to that that business part of me, that organizational part of me, which sometimes is. Um, always on anything, whether it's the color things that we used to do, whether it's the animals, no matter what, the, the part of structure, organization, and then people always is almost in perfect balance. So that whatever this is about, as far as organizational life, is always meant to be for the good of the people and what the people have suggested that they need or that we might have together agreed that needs to be there. So it's interesting. That's never shifted. So I'm still learning about the Enneagram and I may end up somewhere where I don't even think I'm supposed to be. So a yeah. lot of people, a lot of people will tag me as being a two uh, because of my character. I think, I think that's just because you're in social work. I, you know, I, 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 I date a social worker and she is the least two you'll ever meet in her life, but people hear social work and they go, Oh, you're a two. And it's just, I've, I've seen Rachel almost smack a few people because of it. <laughs> Good for her. Good for Amen. So, okay. Well, that was a bonus question. Um, are you are you watching anything on TV right now? Anything on Netflix? Binging anything good? Well, so uh, you know, when Scandal used to be on, I used to watch that, and my students used to die when I'd say, "What's your what's your secret pleasure here?" I say, "Oh, I watch Scandal faithfully every Thursday night. That's the one thing that I'll do is watch Scandal." It's like, okay, talk about totally different than your life. I mean, totally different. Get into. <laughs> But, uh, but I, I literally, on Saturday afternoons, I like to watch, uh, if sports is not on, uh, then I like to watch uh, old Western movies. I love Western mm. movies. I'm, I never get tired of Western movies. Lots love of it. Okay. Uh, what's on your nightstand? When you go to bed tonight, what's on your nightstand? Uh, my Bible and Streams in the Desert. Streams in the Desert. That's okay. old. That's old. Yeah. It works. Yeah. Of course, I always have my utmost for my highest. It always is uh, right here with me at my desk. See, I want to do a whole series on what's on people's desks. I, I want to do. I want to do two series. One is what's on the bookshelf behind you, and I've been really like corralling myself not to get distracted and be like, "What's that? What's that penguin back there for? What do those mugs mean? You know, what are the?" So I've, I've, I'm very proud of myself for for staying within the framework. Um, but then the other thing is, is I want to know what's on your desk. What do you keep there? That's that's a reminder. I have a little. Uh, a block a little it's a, like a die and it's got words of encouragement on it and the one that I always face me says mistakes are fixable oh. and I just keep it right there on me and when I need a little inspiration I might just roll it to see what advice uh, the die might give me so anyways well, I, I have an angel that actually sits here with me that somebody gave me when uh, I was sick a year ago and so I have this but in my office at the school of social work I have a whole set of these 
And then also <clears throat> at my um, office at Truett, I have a whole set of those. And then I also have this, uh, of course I have, I'm an Eagles fan, uh, not Eagles as far as music, but uh, as far as uh, football. Uh, and so I have all sorts of things that sit here around Eagles. I have all sorts of things about the Phillies because I'm also a Phillies fan. Uh, and so I have all of those here in amongst so many things that start to encourage me with my Baylor mugs all around. And then also um, without having gone back to anything that others might have used as saying whether I've had this forever, it is what it is. Uh -huh. And so, uh, and in that is a reminder, quite frankly, that um, um, there's so much opportunity for us in whatever situation we are in for opportunity of, uh -huh. of change, quite frankly. But, yeah not to get discouraged by what is happening. Yeah, completely unrelated. If you could be anywhere, COVID wasn't here anymore and money was no object, where would you be right now? Right here. Right here. Uh-huh. I love Waco. Answer. I love Waco. I love being back in Texas. Being gone for 30 years, I wasn't able to be with family for uh, uh, you know events, uh, lots of events and stuff. And so most of my family now lives uh, my brother and uh, his two daughters, my nieces, are both married with their families, and they're now on this side. Both my parents are, are gone now. And so uh, uh, it's just a, a good place to be. I feel very, very much at home. What's the next brave thing you'll do? I don't know. Open to whatever God has. Never I stop. Like that one. Never stop. I like that one. Trying to live into. You know, uh, I just had this conversation with the women that I teach. I teach an older women's class, and um, and believe it or not, they're all on Zoom. They've all been taught how to do Zoom. So we do Bible study on Thursday afternoons now instead of Sunday mornings. And so uh, uh, as I, of course, have uh, started with them uh, probably now five to ten years ago, and uh, they've all gotten older. We've lost several people through COVID, um, but uh, uh, it is one of those things where um, you look at them at their ages and the faithfulness that they've had to living their lives as uh, Christian women, and they are such an encouragement in so many ways. But the fact that they could be on Zoom also says something, quite frankly, uh, Jonathan. And it's certainly not their favorite thing, but at their ages of uh, some of them, 85 and 90, here they are. And uh, so much to say about that. So yeah. much to say about that. What's, what's your favorite meal? Um, favorite meal is actually, uh, my diet has changed so much in this last year, um, but I would tell you my favorite meal is probably, um, that's going to be a good question at this point. That's a very good question. You know, um, if you didn't have to have any dietary restrictions, if, you're, if your diet hadn't had to change, if you could have anything. The thing that I enjoy the most is a good hamburger. Mm. It doesn't have to be with the fries, uh, all of that. So, um, but uh, definitely uh, a hamburger. And of course, okay. when I was gone for so long, we didn't have Whataburger or anything like that. And so um, the, the burgers of the Northeast are not necessarily the same as the burgers of the South. <laughs> barbecue is always wonderful. But um, anyway, but I also enjoy uh, fish too. Yeah, yeah. And then my last question, uh, what are you deeply grateful for right now? I am deeply grateful for every day that God gives us to live, seriously. I'm grateful for the moment, and um, I'm grateful every day 
uh, that I get to start a new day, uh, for the opportunity to be uh, in the role that I'm in in the university as far as a teacher, uh, to invest uh, myself in the lives of our students. Uh, that number one is just, for me, that is the greatest gift. I cannot imagine anything greater than investing uh, together uh, the educational experience, this environment that we have together, just so eternally grateful, so eternally grateful. I love it. Dr. Gaynor Yancey, this has truly, truly been a pleasure to talk with you. I am so, so very excited and honored uh, to honor you in this year's Hall of Fame class with the W.R. White Meritorious Service Award. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm so excited you're dating a social worker. (laughs) (laughs) She's slowly converting me. I'm Jonathan Platt, and you've been listening to Direct Line Conversations, the podcast, brought to you by Baylor Line Foundation. You can follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And if you haven't, hop on over to wherever you're listening to this and follow, leave a rating, and a review. It really does help. Join me next week for another Direct Line Conversation. Thanks for listening.